I like to say this at the end of our prayer and fasting every year, but I'll say, and I'll say this again, I say it a little differently every year, but many times the things that God does during our season of prayer and fasting, you don't necessarily see the fruit of until later on. There are times that you'll experience breakthroughs during the prayer and fasting, and then there are times that you'll finish and you'll say, what actually was that about? And then what you realize afterwards is that God reworked some things, and he's changing some things, and you start to see sprouts Weeks, months, later on into the year, breakthroughs start to happen and you go, oh, you can trace that back to the time where you spent some time seeking the Lord. Because remember, as Andy said last week, um, we don't pray and fast to, to align God's will to ours. We, align, we pray and fast so that God's will or our will is aligned to God's. And that's significant. And it says, just takes time sometimes. So it's good to have you with us this morning. Thank you for being here. I think I'm just going to have a little seat here if I can do that. Um, but if you have your Bibles with you, I want you to turn uh, to the book of First Thessalonians. First Thessalonians. Uh, it is in the New Testament. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like to follow along, you can grab one of the seat Bibles in front of you. Um, yeah. We're going to start a new series today. Um, We're going to go through the book of 1 Thessalonians. If you're part of Bridge, you know that sometimes our series are actually uh, topical, where we look at an actual topical and we jump across different scriptures in in the Word. And sometimes we go through books of the Bible. Well, it's been a little while since we've actually gone through one full study and one book in scripture. And we're going to kick off a series today through the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, The series is called Unshakable Faith. Unshakable Faith. Now, Whatever comes to mind for you regarding this may be something that others are thinking of, or it may be something very different. But when I think of unshakable faith, I think of the kind of faith, not the kind of faith that doesn't get rattled, okay? Unshakable doesn't mean you cannot move me. Unshakable faith means is I will not fall. The kind of faith that stands through all things. It's like the the passage in Matthew chapter 7, 24, where it says the wise man built his house upon the what? The rocks. Don't say sand. The rocks. The rocks. And when the winds and the waves came, everything happened. There's still a battering that happens during that time, but the house doesn't fall. Unshakable faith doesn't mean that you don't get rattled sometimes. It means at the end of the day, Whatever it is that you're doing and whatever you've experienced, you continue to walk in the faith that God has deposited in your heart through the power of Christ Jesus. That's what it means to have an unshakable faith. And we're going to look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and we are going to start this morning by looking at um, one passage. And I want to give a little bit of background as to why I think this scripture or why this book is so important for us to talk about regarding unshakable faith. Now, the book of Thessalonians was written to the Christians in Thessalonica. Okay, um, It was a book that was written by the Apostle Paul. I like to call it a book. It's really a letter. And it was written to the church in Thessalonica, if you know anything about Paul's missionary journeys, in his second missionary journey, it was during his second missionary journey that he actually visited the city of Thessalonica. Okay, And Thessalonica was a city that he visited for only, most people believe, a few weeks to maybe a month or so. In the scriptures you see in Acts chapter 17, what we see is that when Paul visited Thessalonica, it said he attended the synagogue and for three Sabbaths, He proclaimed the truth of God's word. He disputed, if you will, or convinced some 
who Jesus was and who the Messiah was according to the scriptures. And the scripture actually says that some Jews believed, but many Gentiles believed in that period of time. Now, the problem with all of that is that they were not just teaching that Jesus was Messiah, but they were teaching that Jesus was a king that they should worship. He was the new king, if you will. Now, now in the human sense, that got people really irritated because if you were a Jewish person and you lived in Thessalonica and you didn't like the message that Paul was saying, he was contradicting your Jewish beliefs and what you believed about who Messiah would be, that would get you, give you opportunity to get Paul in trouble because according to the Roman Empire, anyone that preached a message or shared a message declaring anyone else was a king but Caesar was guilty of treason and treason was punishable by death. So by Paul preaching this message about Jesus being the Messiah, the new king that we are here to worship, what inherently people could do at that point was to go back to Rome and the Roman leaders and say, hey, this guy's saying there's a different king other than Caesar, and they could whip up a whole lot of trouble for the Apostle Paul, which in fact is what they did. Three weeks of him preaching this message, three weeks of him declaring the truth, people begin to get saved. They begin to give their hearts to Jesus. All the while, other people that are anti-Paul go to the leaders and say, we need to deal with this guy because he's causing a problem. And Rome, he's saying there's another king besides Caesar. So first off, just take a step back. How many of you, don't show your hands, would have loved to been the Apostle Paul? If you know anything about his life, everywhere he went, we could say, well, there were wonders and there were signs and there was miracles. All that's true. But there was hardship and there was persecution and there was hunger. And he actually said at one point that he was like at the end of the processional that the apostles are like the lowest of the low. They're the junk at the end of the processional that no one really pays attention to. So I think about this situation and I go, he went with a reckless abandon. He went to Thessalonica because of a dream that he had where a man was actually saying in his dream, come to Macedonia and preach the gospel. He goes out of obedience. Three weeks he's there. Three weeks the message is preached. Shortly thereafter, he ends up leaving so that he didn't die. And then he wonders what happens to this church, this new fledgling church that just started, a babe, if you will. What happened to the church in Thessalonica? Wouldn't you wonder if you went somewhere for three or four weeks, preached the gospel, saw all these people start to get saved, you empower as much as you can, you teach as much as you can during that time, and then you leave. Well, Paul sends one of his followers and one of his disciples, Timothy, back to Thessalonica many months later to find out what's happening. Timothy then reports to Paul, they're not just surviving, they are flourishing. That church in Thessalonica is absolutely, positively flourishing. Now, that would be encouraging to me. Wouldn't it be encouraging to you? See that God's doing a work, if you will. They have demonstrated unshakable faith. God planted something in them over a short period of time. Many months later, the feedback is that they're absolutely, positively flourishing. So Paul writes them a letter. About a year after he was there, he writes them a letter, which is the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And he will, if you will, he writes them a report card, if you will, on how he has heard that they have done. Now, I don't know how you feel about report cards, but growing up, I was never a fan of them. 
I didn't like getting report cards. I would get mild anxiety attacks when I would get report cards. Not in grade school. We're not talking elementary school. In elementary school, it was, you know, you'd get check marks and smiley faces and things are going great. And, you know, Paul's really a great kid and all this kind of stuff. I'm talking, I remember when I moved from elementary school to junior high school. And I remember going to one of the preview things. And I watched my mom, which God bless her soul, went and told all these teachers, you wait till my son comes. He's such a great student. You wait till my son comes. It's going to be, you're going to love having my son here because, because I was a good student in elementary school. I remember the pressure. I also remember getting some report cards that I wish she never saw. And I remember being in eighth grade one time, knowing what was coming down the pike. You know, the teachers tell you when report cards were going out back then. Do you know that? I don't know what they do today or how that works, but they would go by mail. So it's not like you could bring them home and show your parents and doctor it up on the bus on the way home. Like they literally mailed it to you. And I remember being in class. I was in science class in eighth grade. And I got something over the the loudspeaker that came in. Uh, Excuse me, excuse me. Uh, Yes. Uh, Could you please have uh, Paul Kemper please come to the office, please? And the teacher looked at me and said, they want you at the office. Okay, he'll be down there. And I walked down and uh, I said, um, I'm Paul, what's up? And they said, oh, your mother's on the phone. And I knew why she was on the phone. She called me at school because guess who just got the mail? And she said, I just got the mail. And I said, yes. And you know your report card was in it? Yes. And do you know what you got in this class and in this class? And I said, yes, I do know what I got. And then I said to her on the phone, why did you have to call me to tell me what I already knew? And she was so upset about the fact that I didn't do as well as she thought I was going to do during that time. Now, I wish I could tell you the story got a lot better, but it didn't, and it was still a struggle. I did better later on in the year, but all I can say is I look back at that, and I think she was so upset because she got a report from the school that didn't give me a good review on how I was doing and how I was performing that year. How would you feel as a church or as a person who's walking in faith if you had to show up one day in your house to see a report card in your mailbox from God? And in that situation, when you opened it up, you would get graded on the things that made you or made you not a healthy follower of Christ. In fact, I would ask you right now to to check yourself and say, what kind of grade do you think you would have gotten? if you listed some of the different things. So what you're going to read this morning, if you will, is a bit of a report card that the Apostle Paul actually was giving the people of Thessalonica. Now, I'm going to give you a little bit of a hint. It's good news. But I just want you to think about this because we're going to talk about it for a little bit this morning and how it applies to us today. 1 Thessalonians 1, 1 through 10. Paul writes, we're going to read all 10 verses. It's only 10 verses and we get through a whole chapter. Chapter 1, verse 1. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers, okay? Good way to start, right? Look what he says in verse 3. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power 
with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction, you know how we lived among you for your sake. He says in verse six, you became imitators of us and the Lord and, and, and of the Lord. For you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. And look what he says in verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we don't need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. If there was a list of things that I could have that would be picked to describe the way I live my faith out in Jesus Christ, I think everything in this list would be something I would take. What is Paul saying to all these people? He's saying, you didn't ask for this report card, but if you will, I'm your teacher. I was there almost a year ago. We were only there for a short period of time. I've been concerned. And what you see all through the New Testament is wherever Paul went, he wore the burden of the churches that he shepherded. It's not as if he was there. He wasn't a traveling evangelist that came and gave a word, had a great worship service, a great altar ministry, and then took off and never saw them again. He became a part of the family. They became a part of the church. He burdened for these people. And his weight and his heart was deep for these different people. He came to them back as a teacher, if you will, writing out a letter of encouragement saying, if I was going to give you a report card, you would get A pluses across every one of these areas that you are living in. Let's take a moment and see some of the areas that he reviewed just briefly. I'm going to touch on these and we won't go back, but I'm just going to read them. In verse three, he said, we remembered your work that was produced by faith. He said, we remember your labor that was prompted by love. And we also remember the endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. We remember these things. When we were there, that's how you walked. And that's how you're still walking. Then in verse 4, he said, God chose you. We can see he chose you because the gospel didn't just come with words. It came with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know what I think that means? I think we misunderstand sometimes. The gospel was brought with a spoken word. Then there was power that came from that. Now, sometimes people say, well, that must mean miracles. It could, but ultimately what he's referring to is the word was given, the word was received, the word began to transform you. Because the greatest miracle we could ever experience is a transformed heart. You heard the word, you received the word, you let the word transform you. And then he says, with the Holy Spirit. There's an evidence that they saw of the Holy Spirit working in them. That's where I think the gifts and the signs come from. And then with a deep conviction, he said, they lived this out through this time. So that's how he knew that God was choosing them, that the word was given, the word was received, they let the word transform them, and then with a deep conviction, with the gifts they've been given, they continued to let the word ring out. Verses 6 and 7, he said, you became imitators of Paul and Silas. And he used the word model. You became a model to everyone in the region. What a great compliment to say to someone who's walking along with, as, as a follower of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you love that to be said about you? 
I'm following Jesus Christ. And someone looks at you and goes, you know, like Paul said in the New Testament, follow me as I follow Christ. He's not saying, look how great I am. Just be great like I am. He said, no, I'm following Jesus in humility. If you want to learn how to follow Jesus, don't just listen to what I say. Watch how I live. That's important for us today in 2024, because we have to be careful to say, well, just preach the gospel, preach the gospel. Of course, we need to preach the gospel. But we do need to do more than just use words. We need to live it. Conversely, we don't just live the gospel. We need to use words. Sometimes I hear people cop out of speaking about the gospel and teaching and speaking out about what it means to be a follower of Christ because they say, well, if my life just looks like Jesus, that's opportunity enough. And can I tell you, it's not. It's not. Will it create opportunity for some? Yes, it will. But God wants us to live the gospel, not just through our our actions, but through our words. So we always, as Paul says, has an answer, have an answer to give for those who question us. And then in verse 8, he says, The gospel message reached the people around you and everywhere. People have spoken about your faith. They see how you turn from idols. You're worshiping the true God and how it has absolutely changed you. What a great report. Isn't that awesome? I would love to bring that report home to my mom in eighth grade and say, look what I'm doing. I wouldn't even have gotten a phone call. And if I did, it would have been a good phone call and not the one that I got. But this would be a great phone call, a great report card to get. Remember, this wasn't a group of believers that had been years in the making. This wasn't a church that's been planted. And for three, four, five years, they've been growing in the Lord. This was a group of people that had a few weeks teaching under the Apostle Paul, who then had to go it on their own and let the word of God transform them as they grew closer to each other, closer to God, and then God used them to change the world around them. It's pretty empowering, isn't it? It's encouraging. Why? They had unshakable faith. Now, how do you experience unshakable faith? What does this have to do with us today? Today, I don't want to focus on the message or the response of the people that changed them. We know the gospel changes people. The word of God is the most powerful thing we believe as a church in biblical truth, it is the unending, never-changing, unwavering word of God that has the power to change all things. It's the word of God coupled with receiving it that begins to change people. But, and I think we all understand this, we can do new things at different times in our life. But how many times have we looked back and saw things that were new now feel old? Things that were exciting now get a little dull. Things that were our eyes and our minds were so focused on with excitement now become yesterday's news. You know what I'm talking about? And we can become that even in our faith. I mean, we understand that in the practical things. Just a few days ago, I was going to a local thrift store, just watching and looking at stuff there. And I saw things in that store that when I was a kid, I was really excited about. And today it's just a piece of junk sitting on a shelf for a dollar 25. And some of you actually might know what I'm talking about. You know, if you go up to Karen Share in Souderton, some of you unload your trucks and your cars with all this awesome stuff that are decades old. And they have pallets of them that they fill um, trucks, right? Big 18-wheeler trucks. Because at one point, all this stuff was exciting. It was new. It was fun. And now it's just stuff that you're trying to find a new home for. And I wonder sometimes, is that how we feel in our faith? 
That when we first heard the good news of Christ, we first went to those conferences, we first had that experience, maybe you were here or somewhere else, and God was speaking to you, and these new things were happening, and you were growing. And then over time, it kind of flattened out a little bit. And then it didn't mean that you're no longer saved. It doesn't mean that you don't love Jesus anymore, but the newness expired. And it just becomes kind of the way that it has been. And if you find as you put a little effort and time into it, it stays, but it's not as fresh as it was. And maybe sometimes you feel like it doesn't have the life that it had before. Here's what I know. That did not apply to the church in Thessalonica. They heard it. They received it. They transformed. It transformed them and they lived it out. Now, how is this even possible? Well, I want to look at one thing that's going to start today, and we're going to look at it through the rest of this series in different measures, and you'll see how this theme goes through the entire book. A big part of what kept this new group of believers firm in their faith, focused, committed, and effective, wasn't just the word, wasn't just the, trans, the, uh, the power and the, and the transformation in their heart. It was an intentional focus and expectation that Jesus Christ was coming back. The return of Jesus Christ was a foundational piece of doctrine, if you will, that the Apostle Paul taught them to say, don't just believe that Jesus is a Savior. Don't just believe that he came to change you. Don't just believe that you can be free by walking in his presence and knowing the one who created you. This one who died, raised from the dead, and ascended to heaven, he's coming back a second time. Get ready. And if you will, take it to another step. Don't get ready. Live ready. That's actually the name of our series, our name of our, our message today. Live ready. Live ready each and every day of your life so that you live in a way that is actively expecting the return of Christ. Jesus could come back any moment. A big part of what they had in their hearts wasn't just the message they heard and the things that were happening. There was an expectation in their mind that the end is not yet here and another thing is right around the corner. And this Jesus that we've accepted and this power in our heart that we've received in the working of the Holy Spirit through the gifts and the wonders and the evangelism that we're continuing, all of those things testify to the fact that the one who died for us and rose again and went back to heaven is coming back for his church. That is so important for us to remember. I think it's one of the most important things that helps our faith become unshakable instead of becoming a distant memory. If you're going to walk away with anything today, I would just say this one tag that I put together. Unshakable faith lives in expectation that Jesus is coming back soon. If you want your faith to be unshakable, if you want to walk this life, in this life, believing and walking, it doesn't mean you won't have off days versus on days. It doesn't mean that you're always going to live on the mountaintops. Sometimes the valleys are the places where the most lush and where God meets us the most. But your faith is still a journey and you don't leave it behind there is an expectation that we need to have that Jesus is coming back soon. Not coming back. Coming back soon. There's a difference. Now, some of you may not understand or know what this even means, the second coming of Jesus Christ, and why we should believe it. Well, literally, the promise of his return was given to the church that he would return to earth, that he would come for all who believe and follow him, that he would bring justice to a broken world, that he would permanently come for all who believe and follow him, and that he would, give, uh, he would destroy evil, he would establish a universal peace when he creates a new heaven and a new earth. All of these things are in Scripture. 
And it was said multiple times throughout the New Testament. The first time that you see this, according to the narrative of Jesus in the book of Acts, is Acts 1-9. Right after he tells his disciples they will be given power to be effective witnesses, and they're supposed to wait in Jerusalem. In verse 9 of Acts, 9, of Acts 1, it says, After he said this, he was taken up before their eyes, and a cloud hid them from their sight. That's verse 9. Can you imagine they're all staring there, just looking up in the sky? Where did he go? Just staring up in the sky. And it says, Then they were looking intently up into the sky, and as he was going... Suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. You cannot be more specific than this. The scriptures say, and we either believe God's word or we don't, but he says the same Jesus that you saw leave this world this way will return when he comes back from heaven. Now, aside from the book of Revelation, there is no other book in the New Testament that talks more about the second coming of Christ than the book of 1 Thessalonians. What you're going to find every single week is that the end of every chapter of 1 Thessalonians, Paul reminds them again and references the, the imminent return of Christ to continue to remind them all these things you're doing are good, but remember he's coming back soon. These things that you're doing are good, but remember, he's coming back soon. Continue to walk out your faith. You have some questions, they're good, but remember, he's coming back soon. It's important for us to grasp this because when we lose sight of the imminence of Christ's return, now you might say imminence, Paul, this was almost 2,000 years ago. Well, God, a day is like 1,000 years and 1,000 years is like a day. We don't know when he's coming. I want to believe that it's going to be sooner now than it ever has been, and that's not prophetic. That's just looking at the calendar. He's coming back now. There's, there hasn't been a time in history that we've been closer to the return of Christ. Isn't that true? It's true. And it's not because I know anything. I just understand time. <laughs> and you can't, you know, we're not going to time travel or anything like that. There's no DeLorean in the Bible. So the way I'm looking at this, and I think this, some of you understand this. Okay, every chapter in this book ends with a, rest, with a reference to this. A reference to the return of Christ, the rapture of the church that will be taken up in the air. Those that will return uh, with him are those that have already passed away in Christ, and then we will meet those together. This is part of the foundational doctrine of what we believe as a church of Jesus Christ. Now, I wish I could say this is what the whole church actually believes. Fifteen years ago, Pew Research did a survey amongst Christians in the United States, and this is what they found. People that were professed followers of Christ 79% believe that Jesus will come back. 79% believe, or almost 80%, Jesus Christ will come back. 20% believe it will be in their lifetime. 80% say they have no idea if or when it will really happen. Now, I grew up in the church, and I've heard people say many times, why is it that 20% of the people in the church seem to do 80% of the work? And I saw these statistics and I thought, is there a possible connection to the fact that those that are actively participating, growing, serving, working with the body, being who God has called them to be in their community, are making a difference that way because they don't just believe in the return of Christ, they believe in an imminent return of Christ. That they want to live their days ready. 
They want to live their days to know, you know, I'm imperfect and I'll make mistakes, but I want to live in a way that he could be here tomorrow. So I ask you to think about this. We know what it's like to have a sense of urgency in this life. When something is thrust upon us, you procrastinators, you know what I'm talking about. When you have a goal or you have an assignment, you have a work-related thing or a church-related thing or a a school uh, commitment you have to make for one of your kids or fill in the blank, sometimes it's easier for us to get focused and make it happen right before it's due. Am I right? We just got out of the Christmas season. I wonder if we were being honest, and I don't want you to raise your hands, how many of us at some point in our time during that season, if we were hosting for any period of time, turned our house upside down to clean, scrub, purge, organize things. There might be a closet in your home somewhere that you still can't open. Because if you do, it's going to be bad news for whoever opens it. But everything else looks nice and clean and presentable. Do you know what I'm talking about? We understand the sense of urgency. We understand that when we're at the edge and it's time for us to say, tomorrow this thing is going to happen. We're going to be visited tomorrow by this family member. We have to give our presentation in 24 hours. We hit all guns going. We're on all cylinders. We're moving forward and we're not going to be uh, thwarted or or, um, distracted by the things around us. You know when else we do this? We do this when those that are close to us are dying. Think about this. Have you ever known anyone that's been at odds with a family member or a friend and they haven't spoken in a long time and they haven't dealt with whatever issue has been dealt with or needs to be dealt with and they wait and they wait because in their mind they think, what's the big deal? I can hold my offense I can deal with this problem at some other point. Maybe it'll just go away by itself. Can I tell you the number of times I have had conversations with people that within days or a week of a close friend or a loved one passing away, they finally make it right. And years have been wasted in that process where they could have had relationship. Marriages could have been restored. Friendships could have been redeemed. Family members could have been reunited, but they wait until it's almost too late and then they finally do something. You know what's even more tragic than that? Is the people are the people that don't do it and they lose the opportunity because they always think there's going to be more time and they wake up tomorrow and they find out their time is over. They lost the opportunity. That person that they thought would be here for another few years are no longer here. And they'll never be able to say to them what they wish they could have said. We understand the idea of imminence, church, don't we? Imminence, urgency, the sense that today may be your last day. Are we living ready? We can interpret this through the lens and say, well, we need to read the Bible more. We need to go to church more. We need to serve more. No, let's look at it through this lens. If Jesus is coming back tomorrow and the scriptures are very clear, it's like, the bridegroom coming for his bride. This is going to be a wedding. He's coming for a pure and spotless bride. So let me ask you a question. If you knew he was showing up tomorrow, what are you going to take off your phone? What are you stripping out of your streaming and your, your, your network and your, your entertainment? What is your calendar going to look different? How is it going to look differently tomorrow than it looks today? What things are you going to purge out of your house, out of your heart, out of your home, because you know that when the bridegroom comes, he's going to say, you know that that doesn't really honor me. Why are you walking the line? If you thought it was going to be tomorrow, do it now. 
And what if every day of our lives, we thought it was going to be tomorrow? That's why the church flourishes when we live in a way to say every day could be our last day before the return of Jesus. And that's what keeps us tight. That's what keeps us sharp. That's what keeps us motivated to say the love of God is so great that he's coming for a pure and spotless church. And here's what's so beautiful in the midst of that, because we don't understand that. Many times we can hear, well, that just sounds like, you know, we've got to give this stuff up. And, you know, but I kind of like that thing, or I really don't want to prioritize this or that. What we don't see when we aren't willing to change our patterns and our priorities is we don't see what God will do in us and through us when we choose to live that way. We don't see that. We just hold on to the things that we think are important. And we have to re- remember, no, no, no. If he's saying these things should go, it's not because he wants to make you miserable. It's because he wants to bless us with a better, deeper relationship with him. And when we choose to say no to that and choose to say yes to the things that matter, we create an opportunity for him to fill us with something greater than we could ever imagine. You can see addictions be broken. You can see restoration in family members. You can see forgiveness being given and received. You can see all kinds of things that the enemy wants to say are hopeless become full of hope if we simply live with eternity in view. It's so many different examples I could give today. I think about it when we spend, we spend all this time. Just last year, we talked about a whole series on the Holy Spirit. We talked about spiritual gifts and abilities. And, and can I tell you, God is not looking for his church to be Monday morning quarterbacks or just participants. You know, our country has the whole thing messed up. Now, I grant it has to be this way. But if you go to a professional sports game, a football game or a baseball game, there's thousands and thousands of people watching a handful of people play. That is the exact opposite of what God wants for his church. He wants everyone on the field. He wants everyone on the field. Why? He wants everyone participating in his kingdom work. He doesn't want us sitting in our seats, eating hot dogs and having drinks and just talking and goofing off, watching someone else do it and criticizing what they do. He wants us on the field. And he says to us over and over again, I've given you gifts. I've given you abilities. I've given you purpose. But you have to be willing to step into that. I need to be willing to step into that. You know, we're a Pentecostal church. We believe in the Pentecostal gifts of what God wants to do. And you know what? I get sick and tired sometimes of hearing talk about people. Oh, we want, we want, we want. What are you doing? What muscles are you stretching? Well, God might be giving me this. Well, go do it. Go do it. Well, I'm afraid. You can be afraid. You can be fearful, but don't let it paralyze you. And I tell you, years ago, we went to Argentina for a missions trip. I took four years of Spanish when I was in high school. And I I went to Argentina on a missions trip, and I was talking to the pastor that was there. And over the course of the week, I continued to try to speak Spanish. And my Spanish probably sounded like a, I don't know, like an eight-month-old trying to understand, you know, what to do. It was silly. It was ridiculous. But by the end of the week, he was starting to understand what I was saying. And I would laugh about it, and he would laugh, and he'd shake his head. He'd be like, oh, 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 oh. you know, oh, pastor, pastor, pastor. So, I'm like, okay, okay, love me, I get it. Okay, what are you trying to tell me? And what he told me was, you will learn the language fast if you continue to try because you're not afraid to make mistakes. And I can tell you that is an example that all of us can live by in this life. If you want to see what God wants to do in you, don't be afraid to, take a, to make a mistake. Don't be afraid to step out. Don't be afraid to walk alongside somebody that can help teach you or instruct you. Don't be afraid to be human. Well, we need the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. We do. But he doesn't steer a parked car. 
He doesn't. We want to be, too often we want to be places where God's doing something. But it doesn't necessarily mean we're in the middle of it. You know, that's like success by proxy. Well, I go to this cool church, man. They got great worship music and God's really moving there. Well, what are you doing to build that? Well, well, I'm just, I'm just there. You know, my son moved to Texas. He goes to a church there. It's an awesome church. The worship music of the church is world renowned at this point. The stuff that you can look it up, Spotify, they tour around the country. The music is awesome. And he told me, he said, dad, you got to wait in line to get in this church at three or four o'clock in the afternoon for a six o'clock service. That's how backed up it is. I'm like, wow, that's amazing. And then he told me, but we have no idea when we're there who actually goes to this church and who doesn't because over 80% of the people that go there, they don't even live in the area. They just show up because they want to be a part of something and then they go home. And I look at that and go, if God wants to use them in that moment to bring it to wherever they're going, great. But how many of us are more curiosity seekers because we want to see God do something around us instead of being the people that God's going to use to make it happen? And I'm telling you this morning, if you see people that you look up to, that you're growing, that you're, you know, they're giants in the faith and they're growing in their faith and I really look up to them, don't think for a moment God can't use you in the same way or more than he uses those people. It's not about their skill or their ability. It's about their availability. It's about their humbleness. If they're willing to walk it out and do the hard things and stay mindful of the fact that every day they should live ready that Jesus Christ is coming back soon. So important. There's a commission that we should, that we should follow. In Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus said, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. There's four things I want to show you this morning, very briefly. I'm going to make it real brief, that they're responses to this great commission. He has given us a commission to go and make disciples of all people. That is not something that only goes to pastors or to people on staff or to people that have walked with Jesus for maybe five or ten years. If you're a follower of Jesus, he's called you to make disciples. And one of the ways you can stay on that path to walk in holiness and to let God work work through you is to have a focal, laser-like focus on the imminent return of Jesus Christ. To live today like he's coming back tomorrow. But there are four ways that we can interpret this great commission and we can do as Christians. I'm going to ask you to ask yourself, which one of these are you? Number one, you could hibernate. You could hibernate in response to the great commission. And what do I mean by that? I mean, there's a lot of hardship around us. Difficult things are coming down the road. Just like bears see the harshness of winters. What do they do? They find a cave and they go to sleep until the winter is gone. You know, there's a lot of Christians that are good at hibernating in this world. They're good at saying, you know, this world is falling apart. It's difficult. I'm just going to close the doors around me and wait till Jesus comes back. That is not appropriate response to the Great Commission. He has not called you and I to hibernate. He's called you to use your gifts and to get out even if you are afraid. He's called you to say, don't let the fear of things around you lock you up in your room. Don't close the doors in your home and deadbolt the doors or, or, or pick up where you're going and go find some far out place that's a thousand miles from civilization and just live off the land and pray that God's going to come back. That's hibernation. And that is not what God has asked us to do. Are you finding yourself hibernating instead of fulfilling the Great Commission? Number two, maybe you don't hibernate, maybe you accommodate. Maybe the Christian's response right now is not, I'm running away from everything, but it's, how do I take who I am and just give who I am to become more like the world around us? I just kind of blend in. Is that who you are today? Has God called us to blend in? No. 
He's called us to contextualize the gospel where we are, but he's not called the church to look like the world. He wants the world to be influenced by the church. And if our lives don't look any different than the people around us, maybe we're accommodating. Maybe we don't look much different than anyone else. Maybe the things we do, the hobbies we have, our priorities, our indulgences, sometimes they look exactly the same as people that don't know Jesus. But God bless God, we are saved, delivered, and healed, and we're going to worship on Sundays, but you wouldn't know by the rest of our week that our lifestyle and our priorities look any different than anybody else. Our marriages don't look any different. Our relationships don't look any different. Our ethics and our morals don't look any different. You know, These are extremes. You know what I'm talking about. I'm not saying that we're, that's extreme. But accommodation is a dangerous thing, and it's not a response that we should have if we're going to fulfill the Great Commission. The third one, I love this one, contemplate. Maybe you don't hibernate or accommodate. Maybe you're contemplating. Your response is to contemplate. You're more interested in knowing the dates, the circumstances, the time. What is God doing? Let's open up. I've heard people say over the years, can we do a study on Revelation? Can we do a study on Daniel? Why? Why? Because I want to know all the little details. You're not going to figure it out. I don't know. I just, I want to figure, let's do a deep study on the bowls and the seals and the horsemen and all that. I'm like, no, I don't want to do that. Why? Don't you love Jesus? Of course I love Jesus. But you know what that's going to do for you in your spiritual walk? Nothing. It's going to do nothing. Now, I'm not shooting down preachers that make that their life. I'm just saying if our whole goal is to pull the crystal ball and try to figure out what's going to happen, we're missing the point. What do we need to know? We need to know he's coming back. We need to know we need to be ready. We need to know he's going to right all the wrongs. We need to know that there is going to be a return and a rapture of a church and there's going to be a tribulation and all those things are going to happen. But you know what? We can be secure because we know the one who is in control of it all and he has called us to be the hands and feet of Christ and this church until he returns. That's what we need to know. Now, if you're a studier of those things and you want to learn about it, sure, you can do that. But if your whole life is about contemplating and filling your mind with understanding, it does not help you fulfill the Great Commission. Be careful how much you contemplate. I heard someone say, we can know the truth and not live the truth. And that's hypocrisy. If you know the truth and you don't live it, that's hypocrisy. But if you know the truth without sharing the truth, that's cruelty. There's a magician that some of you have heard of. His name is Penn Jillette. He's part of the duo Penn and Teller. who has been in Las Vegas for decades. And he said this regarding Christians and people who proselytize. He said, I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize. Now, he said, I don't respect that at all. Now, this man is an atheist. He said, if you believe that there's a heaven and a hell, and people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life, and you think that it's not really worth telling them because it could make things socially awkward... And atheists who think people shouldn't proselytize and who say, just leave me alone and keep your religion to yourself. How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? And then he said, I mean, if I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe that truck was bearing down on you, there is a certain point where I tackle you. And this is more important than that. Maybe you don't hibernate and you don't accommodate, but maybe you spend so much time contemplating where you can't get out of your head or thinking of the details and you never get to the place where you speak what God is asking you to speak. None of those are good ways for us to respond to the second coming of Christ. 
I'm sorry, to the Great Commission. The fourth one, and we're going to end here as our worship team comes, our fourth, fourth one is not hibernate. It's not accommodate or contemplate. It is simply to medicate. To medicate. Now, what do you mean by that? Now, in the counseling world, that means one thing. But in the spiritual world, it means something different. Look what Jesus said in Luke chapter 5, 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it is the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What if our response to the Great Commission is to see ourselves of those that are keepers of healing, keepers of the great physician, who are come to not infiltrate, to not penetrate people, and, and, and to, not, to not divide and conquer, but to medicate this broken, dying, sick world? What if that's the call that God has really given us? And to make the priority of our actions not to take over the world, but simply to bring health and healing to broken people. Do you believe that? Let me ask you this question. If you know Jesus this morning and you're a follower of Christ, haven't you experienced that at some point in your life? Where you were lost without Christ, but now you were found. Where you were dead in your sin, but now you're made alive. You follow me? The message of the gospel is not just about let's change the world for Jesus. It's about let's bring hurting hope, hurting heart, hard-hearted people hope in Christ and bring to them a healing balm and medicate the world with the spirit of the living God. When we choose to do that, our faith becomes unshakable. Our team is going to sing this song, and I want to be um, respectful of time because I've gone over this morning. But I'm going to ask our, our altar people to come to the front, and if you all would just join me and stand. The team is going to sing this song, and if you need to leave, by all means, you can pick up and you can leave. Just go. If you have to pick up your kids, if you have someplace to be, that's fine. But if you would like to spend some time, or maybe there's one of these things you want us to pray for, let us pray for you while the team is playing. You don't have to wait till it's over. We're going to be here. But you can join us in worship. You can reflect where you are. You can ask the Holy Spirit to speak with you. Because he doesn't want us to get ready for his return. He wants us to live ready for his return. Jesus, I just pray this morning that we would be mindful and reminded this morning that faith truly comes by walking in your, in your truth and your love. Holy Spirit, would you have your way in this place? Draw us closer to you, that we would learn to live ready and walk with the empowerment that comes by knowing you, for there's no greater thing and there's no greater foundation to stand on than the rock of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray.